20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Jules Verne, Chapter 12, Everything Through Electricity. Sir, Captain Nemo said, showing me the instruments hanging on the walls of his stateroom, these are the devices needed to navigate the Nautilus. Here, as in the lounge, I always have them before my eyes, and they indicate my position and exact heading in the midst of the ocean. You're familiar with some of them, such as the thermometer, which gives the temperature inside the Nautilus, the barometer, which measures the heaviness of the outside air and forecasts changes in the weather, the humidistat, which indicates the degree of dryness in the atmosphere, the storm glass, whose mixture decomposes to foretell the arrival of tempests, the compass, which steers my course, the sextant, which takes the sun's altitude and tells me my latitude, chronometers, which allow me to calculate my longitude, and finally spyglasses, for both day and night, enabling me to scrutinize every point of the horizon once the Nautilus has risen to the surface of the waves. These are the normal navigational instruments, I replied, and I'm familiar with their uses, but no doubt these others answer pressing needs unique to the Nautilus. That dial I see there, with the needle moving across it, isn't it a pressure gauge? It is indeed a pressure gauge. It's placed in contact with the water, and it indicates the outside pressure on our hull, which in turn gives me the depth at which my submersible is sitting. And these are some new breed of sounding line? They're thermometric sounding lines that report water temperatures in the different strata. And these other instruments, whose functions I can't even guess. Here, Professor, I need to give you some background information, Captain Nemo said. So kindly hear me out. He fell silent for some moments. Then he said, There's a powerful, obedient, swift, and effortless force that can be bent to any use and which reigns supreme aboard my vessel. It does everything. It lights me. It warms me. It's the soul of my mechanical equipment. This force is electricity. Electricity? I exclaimed in some surprise. Yes, sir. But, Captain, you have a tremendous speed of movement that doesn't square with the strength of electricity. Until now, its dynamic potential has remained quite limited, capable of producing only small amounts of power. Professor, Captain Nemo replied, my electricity isn't the run-of-the-mill variety, and with your permission, I'll leave it at that. I won't insist, sir, and I'll rest content with simply being flabbergasted at your results. I would ask one question, however, which you needn't answer if it's indiscreet. The electric cells you use to generate this marvelous force must be depleted very quickly. Their zinc component, for example, how do you replace it? since you no longer stay in contact with the shore. That question deserves an answer, Captain Nemo replied. First off, I'll mention that at the bottom of the sea there exist veins of zinc, iron, silver, and gold, whose mining would be quite certainly feasible. But I've tapped none of these land-based metals, and I wanted to make demands only on the sea itself for the sources of my electricity. The sea itself? Yes, Professor and there was no shortage of such sources. In fact, by establishing a circuit between two wires immersed to different depths, 
I'd be able to obtain electricity through the diverging temperatures they experience, but I preferred to use a more practical procedure. And that is, you're familiar with the composition of salt water. In 1,000 grams, one finds 96.5% water and about 2.66% sodium chloride, then small quantities of magnesium chloride, potassium chloride, magnesium bromide, sulfate of magnesia, calcium sulfate, and calcium carbonate. Hence, you observe that sodium chloride is encountered there in significant proportions. Now then, it's this sodium that I extract from salt water and with which I compose my electric cells. Sodium? Yes, sir. Mixed with mercury, it forms an amalgam that takes the place of zinc in Bunsen cells. The mercury is never depleted, only the sodium is consumed, and the sea itself gives me that. Beyond this, I'll mention that sodium batteries have been found to generate the greater electricity, and their electromotor strength is twice that of zinc batteries. Captain, I fully understand the excellence of sodium under the conditions in which you're placed. The sea contains it. Fine. But it still has to be produced. In short, extracted. And how do you accomplish this? Obviously, your batteries could do the extracting, but if I'm not mistaken, the consumption of sodium needed by your electric equipment would be greater than the quantity you'd extract. It would come about, then, that in the process of producing your sodium, you'd use up more than you'd make. Accordingly, Professor, I don't extract it with batteries. Quite simply, I utilize the heat of coal from the earth. From the earth? I said, my voice going up on the word. We'll say coal from the seafloor, if you prefer, Captain Nemo replied. And you can mine these veins of underwater coal? You'll watch me work them, Professor Aranax. I ask only a little patience of you, since you'll have ample time to be patient. Just remember one thing. I owe everything to the ocean. It generates electricity, and electricity gives the Nautilus heat, light, motion, and, in a word, life itself. But not the air you breathe. Oh, I could produce the air needed on board, but it would be pointless, since I can rise to the surface of the sea whenever I like. However, even though electricity doesn't supply me with breathable air, it at least operates the powerful pumps that store it under pressure in special tanks, which, if need be, allows me to extend my stay in the lower strata for as long as I want. Captain, I replied, I'll rest content with marveling. You've obviously found what all mankind will surely find one day, the true dynamic power of electricity. I'm not so certain they'll find it, Captain Nemo replied icily. But be that as it may, you're already familiar with the first use I've found for this valuable force. It lights us and with a uniformity and continuity not even possessed by sunlight. Now look at that clock. It's electric. It runs with an accuracy rivaling the finest chronometers. I've had it divided into 24 hours like Italian clocks. Since neither day nor night, sun nor moon, exist for me, but only this artificial light that I import into the depths of the seas. See, right now, it's 10 o'clock in the morning. That's perfect. Another use for electricity, 
That dial hanging before our eyes indicates how fast the Nautilus is going. An electric wire puts it in contact with the patent log. This needle shows me the actual speed of my submersible. And hold on, just now we're proceeding at the moderate pace of 15 miles per hour. That's marvelous, I replied. And I truly see, Captain, how right you are to use this force. It's sure to take the place of wind, water, and steam. But that's not all, Professor Aranax, Captain Nemo said, standing up. And if you'd care to follow me, we'll inspect the Nautilus's stern. In essence, I was already familiar with the whole forward part of this underwater boat. And here are its exact subdivisions, going from amidships to its spur. The dining room, five meters long and separated from the library by a watertight bulkhead. In other words, it couldn't be penetrated by the sea. The library, five meters long. The main lounge, ten meters long, separated from the captain's stateroom by a second watertight bulkhead. The aforesaid stateroom, five meters long. Mine, two and a half meters long. And finally, air tanks, seven and a half meters long and extending to the stem post. Total, a length of 35 meters. Doors were cut into the watertight bulkheads and were shut hermetically by means of India rubber seals, which ensured complete safety aboard the Nautilus in the event of a leak in any one section. I followed Captain Nemo down gangways located for easy transit, and I arrived amidships. There I found a sort of shaft heading upward between two watertight bulkheads. An iron ladder, clamped to the wall, led to the shaft's upper end. I asked the captain what this ladder was for. It goes to the skiff, he replied. What? You have a skiff? I replied in some astonishment. Surely. An excellent longboat, light and unsinkable, which is used for excursions and fishing trips. But when you want to set out, don't you have to return to the surface of the sea? By no means. The skiff is attached to the topside of the Nautilus's hull and is set in a cavity expressly designed to receive it. It's completely decked over, absolutely watertight, and held solidly in place by bolts. This ladder leads to a manhole cut into the Nautilus's hull and corresponding to a comparable hole cut into the side of the skiff. I insert myself through this double opening into the longboat. My crew close up the hole belonging to the Nautilus. I close up the one belonging to the skiff, simply by screwing it into place. I undo the bolts holding the skiff to the submersible, and the longboat rises with prodigious speed to the surface of the sea. I then open the deck paneling, carefully closed until that point. I upmast and hoist sail, or I take out my oars and I go for a spin. But how do you return to the ship? I don't, Professor Aranax. The Nautilus returns to me. At your command? At my command. An electric wire connects me to the ship. I fire off a telegram, and that's that. Right, I said, tipsy from all these wonders. Nothing to it. After passing the well of the companionway that led to the platform, I saw a cabin two meters long in which Conseil and Ned Land, enraptured with their meal, were busy devouring it to the last crumb. Then a door opened into the galley, three meters long, and located between the vessel's huge storage lockers. There, 
even more powerful and obedient than gas, electricity did most of the cooking. Arriving under the stoves, wires transmitted to the platinum griddles a heat that was distributed and sustained with perfect consistency. It also heated a distilling mechanism that, via evaporation, supplied excellent drinking water. Next to this galley was a bathroom, conveniently laid out, with faucets supplying hot or cold water at will. After the valley came the cruise quarters, five meters long, but the door was closed and I couldn't see its accommodations, which might have told me the number of men it took to operate the Nautilus. At the far end stood a fourth watertight bulkhead separating the cruise quarters from the engine room. A door opened, and I stood in the compartment where Captain Nemo, indisputably a world-class engineer, had set up his locomotive equipment. Brightly lit, the engine room measured at least 20 meters in length. It was divided, by function, into two parts. The first contained the cells for generating electricity. The second, that mechanism transmitting movement to the propeller. Right off, I detected an odor permeating the compartment that was sui generis. Captain Nemo noticed the negative impression it made on me. That, he told me, is a gaseous discharge caused by our use of sodium, but it's only a mild inconvenience. In any event, every morning we sanitize the ship by ventilating it in the open air. Meanwhile, I examined the Nautilus's engine with a fascination easy to imagine. You observe, Captain Nemo told me, that I used Bunsen cells, not Ruhmkorff cells. The latter would be ineffectual. One uses fewer Bunsen cells, but they're big and strong, and experience has proven their superiority. The electricity generated here makes its way to the stern, where electromagnets of huge size activate a special system of levers and gears that transmit movement to the propeller's shaft. The latter has a diameter of six meters, a pitch of seven and a half meters, and can do up to 120 revolutions per minute. And that gives you a speed of 50 miles per hour. There lay a mystery, but I didn't insist on exploring it. How could electricity work with such power? Where did this nearly unlimited energy originate? Was it in the extraordinary voltage obtained from some new kind of induction coil? Could its transmission have been immeasurably increased by some unknown system of levers? This was the point I couldn't grasp. Captain Nemo, I said, I'll vouch for the results and not try to explain them. I've seen the Nautilus at work out in front of the Abraham Lincoln, and I know where I stand on its speed. But it isn't enough just to move. We have to see where we're going. We must be able to steer right or left, up or down. How do you reach the lower depths, where you meet an increasing resistance that's assessed in hundreds of atmospheres? How do you rise back to the surface of the ocean? Finally, how do you keep your ship at whatever level suits you? Am I indiscreet in asking you all these things? Not at all, Professor, the captain answered me after a slight hesitation, since you'll never leave this underwater boat. Come into the lounge. It's actually our workroom, and there you'll learn the full story about the Nautilus. Chapter 13 some figures. 
A moment later, we were seated on a couch in the lounge, cigars between our lips. The captain placed before my eyes a working drawing that gave the ground plan, cross-section, and side view of the Nautilus. Then he began his description as follows. Here, Professor Aranax, are the different dimensions of this boat now transporting you. It's a very long cylinder with conical ends. It noticeably takes the shape of a cigar, a shape already adopted in London for several projects of the same kind. The length of this cylinder from end to end is exactly 70 meters, and its maximum breadth of beam is 8 meters. So it isn't quite built on the 10 to 1 ratio of your high-speed steamers, but its lines are sufficiently long and they're tapering gradual enough so that the displaced water easily slips past and poses no obstacle to the ship's movements. These two dimensions allow you to obtain, via a simple calculation, the surface area and volume of the Nautilus. Its surface area totals 1,011.45 square meters. Its volume, 1,507.2 cubic meters, which is tantamount to saying that when it's completely submerged, it displaces 1,500 cubic meters of water, or weighs 1,500 metric tons. In drawing up plans for a ship meant to navigate underwater, I wanted it, when floating on the waves, to lie nine-tenths below the surface and to emerge only one-tenth. Consequently, under these conditions it needed to displace only nine-tenths of its volume, hence 1,356.48 cubic meters. In other words, it was to weigh only that same number of metric tons. So I was obliged not to exceed this weight while building it to the aforesaid dimensions. The Nautilus is made up of two hulls, one inside the other. Between them, joining them together, are iron T-bars that give this ship the utmost rigidity. In fact, thanks to this cellular arrangement, it has the resistance of a stone block, as if it were completely solid. Its plating can't give way. It's self-adhering and not dependent on the tightness of its rivets. And due to the perfect union of its materials, the solidarity of its construction allows it to defy the most violent seas. The two hulls are manufactured from boilerplate steel, whose relative density is 7.8 times that of water. The first hull has a thickness of no less than 5 centimeters and weighs 394.96 metric tons. My second hull, the outer cover, includes a keel 50 centimeters high by 25 wide which by itself weighs 62 metric tons. This hull, the engine, the ballast, the various accessories and accommodations, plus the bulkheads and interior braces, have a combined weight of 961.52 metric tons, which when added to 394.96 metric tons, gives us the desired total of 1,356.48 metric tons. Clear? Clear, I replied. So, the captain went on. When the Nautilus lies on the waves under these conditions, one-tenth of it does emerge above the water. Now then, if I provide some ballast tanks equal in capacity to that one-tenth, hence able to hold 150.72 metric tons, 
and if I fill them with water, the boat then displaces 1,507.2 metric tons, or it weighs that much, and it would be completely submerged. That's what comes about, Professor. These ballast tanks exist within easy access in the lower reaches of the Nautilus. I open some stopcocks, the tanks fill, the boat sinks, and it's exactly flush with the surface of the water. Fine, Captain, but now we come to a genuine difficulty. You're able to lie flush with the surface of the ocean, that I understand, but lower down, while diving beneath that surface, isn't your submersible going to encounter a pressure and consequently undergo an upward thrust that must be assessed at one atmosphere per every 30 feet of water, hence at about one kilogram per each square centimeter? Precisely, sir. Then unless you fill up the whole Nautilus, I don't see how you can force it down into the heart of these liquid masses. Professor, Captain Nemo replied, Static objects mustn't be confused with dynamic ones, or we'll be open to serious error. Comparatively little effort is spent in reaching the ocean's lower regions, because all objects have a tendency to become sinkers. Follow my logic here. I'm all ears, Captain. When I wanted to determine what increase in weight the Nautilus needed to be given in order to submerge, I had only to take note of the proportionate reduction in volume that salt water experiences in deeper and deeper strata. That's obvious, I replied. Now then, if water isn't absolutely incompressible, at least it compresses very little. In fact, according to the most recent calculations, this reduction is only 0.0000436 per atmosphere, or per every 30 feet of depth. For instance, to go 1,000 meters down, I must take into account the reduction in volume that occurs under a pressure equivalent to that from a 1,000 meter column of water. In other words, under a pressure of 100 atmospheres. In this instance, the reduction would be 0.00436. Consequently, I'd have to increase my weight from 1,507.2 metric tons to 1,513.77, so the added weight would only be 6.57 metric tons. That's all. That's all, Professor Aranax, and the calculation is easy to check. Now then, I have supplementary ballast tanks capable of shipping 100 metric tons of water, so I can descend to considerable depths. When I want to rise again and lie flush with the surface, all I have to do is expel that water. And if I desire that the Nautilus emerge above the waves to one-tenth of its total capacity, I empty all the ballast tanks completely. This logic, backed up by figures, left me without a single objection. I accept your calculations, Captain, I replied, and I'd be ill-mannered to dispute them, since your daily experience bears them out. But at this juncture, I have a hunch that we're still left with one real difficulty. What's that, sir? When you're at a depth of a thousand meters, the Nautilus's plating bears a pressure of 100 atmospheres. If at this point you want to empty the supplementary ballast tanks in order to lighten your boat and rise to the surface, 
your pumps must overcome that pressure of 100 atmospheres, which is 100 kilograms per each square centimeter. This demands a strength that electricity alone can give me, Captain Nemo said swiftly. Sir, I repeat, the dynamic power of my engines is nearly infinite. The Nautilus's pumps have prodigious strength, as you must have noticed when their water spouts swept like a torrent over the Abraham Lincoln. Besides, I use my supplementary ballast tanks only to reach an average depth of 1,500 to 2,000 meters, and that with a view to conserving my machinery. Accordingly, when I have a mind to visit the ocean depths two or three vertical leagues beneath the surface, I use maneuvers that are more time-consuming but no less infallible. What are they, Captain? I asked. Here I'm naturally led into telling you how the Nautilus is maneuvered. I can't wait to find out. In order to steer this boat to port or starboard, in short, to make turns on a horizontal plane, I use an ordinary wide-bladed rudder that's fastened to the rear of the stern post and worked by a wheel and tackle. But I can also move the Nautilus upward and downward on a vertical plane by the simple method of slanting its two fins, which are attached to its sides at its center of flotation. These fins are flexible, able to assume any position, and can be operated from inside by means of powerful levers. If these fins stay parallel with the boat, the latter moves horizontally. If they slant, the Nautilus follows the angle of that slant, and under its propeller's thrust, either sinks on a diagonal as steep as it suits me, or rises on that diagonal. And similarly, if I want to return more swiftly to the surface, I throw the propeller in gear, and the water's pressure makes the Nautilus rise vertically as an air balloon inflated with hydrogen lifts swiftly into the skies. Bravo, Captain, I exclaimed. But in the midst of the waters, how can your helmsman follow the course you've given him? My helmsman is stationed behind the windows of a pilot house, which protrudes from the top side of the Nautilus's hull and is fitted with biconvex glass. Is glass capable of resisting such pressures? Perfectly capable. Though fragile on impact, crystal can still offer considerable resistance. In 1864, during experiments on fishing by electric light in the middle of the North Sea, glass panes less than 7 millimeters thick were seen to resist a pressure of 16 atmospheres, all the while letting through strong heat-generating rays whose warmth was unevenly distributed. Now then, I use glass windows measuring no less than 21 centimeters at their centers. In other words, they've 30 times the thickness. Fair enough, Captain. But if we're going to see, we need light to drive away the dark. And in the midst of the murky waters, I wonder how your helmsman can set astern of the pilot house is a powerful electric reflector whose rays light up the sea for a distance of half a mile. Oh, bravo! Bravo three times over, Captain! That explains the phosphorescent glow from this so-called narwhal that so puzzled us scientists. Pertinent to this, I'll ask you if the Nautilus's running afoul of the Scotia, which caused such a great uproar, was the result of an accidental encounter. Entirely accidental, sir. I was navigating two meters beneath the surface of the water when the collision occurred. However, I could see that it had no dire consequences. None, sir. But as for your encounter with the Abraham Lincoln, 
Professor, that troubled me because it's one of the best ships in the gallant American Navy, but they attacked me and I had to defend myself. All the same, I was content simply to put the frigate in a condition where it could do me no harm. It won't have any difficulty getting repairs at the nearest port. Ah, Commander, I exclaimed with conviction, your Nautilus is truly a marvelous boat. Yes, Professor, Captain Nemo replied with genuine excitement, and I love it as if it were my own flesh and blood. Aboard a conventional ship, facing the ocean's perils, danger lurks everywhere. On the surface of the sea, your chief sensation is the constant feeling of an underlying chasm, as the Dutchman Jansen so aptly put it. But below the waves, aboard the Nautilus, your heart never fails you. There are no structural deformities to worry about, because the double hull of this boat has the rigidity of iron. No rigging to be worn out by rolling and pitching of the waves. No sails for the wind to carry off. No boilers for the steam to burst open. No fires to fear, because this submersible is made of sheet iron, not wood. No coal to run out of, since electricity is its mechanical force. No collisions to fear, because it navigates the watery deep all by itself. No storms to brave, because just a few meters below the waves, it finds absolute tranquility. There, sir, there's the ideal ship. And if it's true that the engineer has more confidence in his craft than the builder, and the builder more than the captain himself, you can understand the utter abandon with which I place my trust in this Nautilus, since I'm its captain, builder, and engineer all in one. Captain Nemo spoke with winning eloquence. The fire in his eyes and the passion in his gestures transfigured him. Yes, he loved his ship the same way a father loves his child. But one question, perhaps indiscreet, naturally popped up, and I couldn't resist asking it. You're an engineer then, Captain Nemo? Yes, Professor, he answered me. I studied in London, Paris, and New York back in the days when I was a resident of the Earth's continents. But how were you able to build this wonderful Nautilus in secret? Each part of it, Professor Aronnax, came from a different spot on the globe, and reached me at a cover address. Its keel was forged by Crusoe in France, its propeller shaft by Penn & Co. in London, the sheet iron plates for its hull by Laird's in Liverpool, its propeller by Scott's in Glasgow, its tanks were manufactured by Kale & Company in Paris, its engine by Krupp in Prussia, its spur by the Motala workshops in Sweden, its precision instruments by Hart Brothers in New York, etc. And each of these suppliers received my specifications under a different name. But, I went on, once these parts were manufactured, didn't they have to be mounted and adjusted? Professor, I set up my workshops on a deserted island in the mid-ocean. There, our Nautilus was completed by me and my workmen. In other words, by my gallant companions whom I've molded and educated. Then, when the operation was over, we burned every trace of our stay on that island, which if I could have, I'd have blown up. From all this, may I assume that such a boat costs a fortune? An iron ship, Professor Aronnax, runs 1,125 pounds per metric ton. 
Now then, the Nautilus has a burden of 1,500 metric tons. Consequently, it cost 1,687,000 pounds, hence 2 million pounds, including its accommodations, and 4 or 5 million pounds with all the collections and works of art it contains. One last question, Captain Nemo. Ask, Professor. You're rich, then. Infinitely rich, sir, and without any trouble. I could pay off the 10 billion franc French national debt. I gaped at the bizarre individual who had just spoken these words. Was he playing on my credibility? Time would tell. <laughs>